Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. Hello? Haley, it's Luke. Hey, Luke, how are you? I've got a question for you. Yeah. So I know you were just a baby 30 years ago at Christmas time, but <laughs> 30 years ago at Christmas time, there were two albums that released that I think you would be mm-hmm. interested in, but I want you to only choose one. If you had to choose between them, which one would you listen to for the rest of your life? Okay, I'm ready. So Dolly Parton released a new Christmas album, mm-hmm. as did Barry Manilow. Oh gosh, look, this is hard. I mean, so here's the thing. Dolly is like a role model for me. She's someone I look up to, someone who inspires me. 10 seconds to answer, are you losing both? 10, Barry. I'm choosing Barry. What? I know, I know. It doesn't make sense. Have you heard Dolly Parton? Yes. Have you heard Barry Manilow? Yes. I mean, it's for the rest of my life, though. The truth is, I'm not sure I have heard Barry Manilow, if I'm totally honest. I've heard the well, name for a long time. You've heard, you don't, like, you couldn't name a single Barry Manilow song? Absolutely not. Not one. Luke! Okay, that sounds like there's a bigger issue to be resolved here. No. And now this is my new personal mission to introduce you You've to Barry Manilow. You've got a lot of personal missions to introduce me to things. I think you should maybe <laughs> spend your time on other activities. We'll see. We'll All see. right. Well, you can have you can have the Barry Manilow Christmas record from 1990. I will take the Dolly Parton Christmas record from 1990. I will say you did choose the one that sold better. His went platinum and hers only went gold. But whatever. <sighs> you can have Barry. I'll take Dolly and I'll just see you on the other side. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you. We'll see you later. Okay. Bye. From Milieu Media Group, this is 30 Pop, a weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Braun. This is Season 2, Episode 49, Gothic Romance, Toilet Paper, and Water. Today, we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, December 15th, 1990. Hello, friends, and thank you for joining me yet again as we prepare to say goodbye once and for all to the year 1990. We've got three episodes left counting today before we begin venturing forth into 1991 and our third season of 30 Pop. So let's make the most of it, shall we? We actually have a ton to cover today, so I won't waste any time. 30 years ago this week, as you should already know, the number one album in the country was Vanilla Ice's To The Extreme for the sixth of its 16-week run at the top. But Vanilla Ice wasn't the only white rapper making headlines. In fact, Ice wasn't too happy about the headlines being made in Detroit, Michigan and the surrounding region, when on December 11, 1990, fellow white rapper Robert James Ritchie, sometimes known as Bobby Shazam, released his debut studio album, Grits Sandwiches for Breakfast, under the stage name by which we've all come to know him, Kid Rock. Rock grew up in a nearly 6,000-square-foot home on a six-acre estate in rural Michigan, just outside Detroit. As a teenager, he developed a love for hip-hop, taught himself to rap, DJ, and breakdance, and began performing in talent shows in the Detroit area. He quickly rose through the ranks locally and became a name in the Detroit music scene. 
He was discovered by rapper and DJ D-Nice, who we've discussed quite a bit in our review of 1990, and was signed to Jive Records, making Vanilla Ice super jealous, despite his newfound global fame. I listened to a bit of this record, and it was precisely as not for me as I expected. Nonetheless, it's impossible to deny Kid Rock's place in music history for the last 30 years, as bad as I may want to. Or even, and this is hard for me to admit, his talent. I learned in researching this record that even with all his genre hopping from hip-hop to rock to country music, Rock is a multi-instrumentalist, all self-taught, and has played just about every instrument on many, if not most, if not all, of his records to date. So, regardless of what I think of his music, he is undeniably talented. There wasn't a ton of other music news this week. Moni Love was still at the top of the hot rap chart with Moni in the Middle. George Strait held his number one spot on the hot country chart with I've Come to Expect It From You. And Stevie B was still, confoundingly, number one on the Hot 100 chart with Because I Love You, the Postman song. The only change we saw this week was on the Hot R&B and Hip Hop chart, when former New Edition member Ralph Tresvant replaced Whitney Houston's I'm Your Baby Tonight with his debut single as a solo artist, Sensitivity. In TV news this week in 1990, we saw the series finale of MTV's first original non-musical program and first game show, Remote Control. The show was hosted by the late Ken Ober and featured a young, cigarette-smoking Colin Quinn as his sidekick. The writing cast over the show's three and a half years on the air included and helped launch the careers of actors Dennis Leary and Adam Sandler, each of whom wound up with recurring roles on the show by the time production stopped. I do remember this show vaguely, but I can't say I ever gave it too much attention. We had far more happening this week in Hollywood. As I mentioned a couple weeks back, we were now in the middle of the second major blockbuster season of the year with back-to-back holiday season releases. On the weekend of December 14th, there were four new movies in theaters of which I cared about to varying degrees. I'll take them in ascending order. The film I cared slash care about the least was Havana, starring Robert Redford and directed by Sidney Pollack. I respect Redford a ton, but A, I don't even remember hearing of this movie in 1990. Two, I find the trailer completely uninteresting today. And D, with the exception of Alan Arkin, I don't recognize any of the other actors in this movie. So, we won't linger on it. The next movie on that list, which I also didn't really care about, but I do remember and find somewhat interesting today, was Mermaids, starring Cher and Winona Ryder. Play my favorite game. What's the worst weather in the world? Oh, now don't tell me. Let me guess. Who could it be? Could it be me? Charlotte's mother is many things. Charlotte, we're Jewish. Normal isn't one of them. Okay, how do I look? Like a woman about to go forth in sin. Oh, good. Exactly the look I was hoping for. That's how Rachel liked it. One, two, three. And that's why Charlotte didn't. Sometimes I feel like you're the child and I'm the grown-up. What is this? Cheese ball pick-me-ups and for dessert, marshmallow kebabs. Don't do anything I wouldn't do. I'm trying not to drive too fast. Well, after my mom, nothing seems fast. They have almost nothing in common. Or don't do anything I would. Are you coming home with me? I never mind. But there's one thing they do share. Men. You kissed him? How could you do that? Well, if I were you, Charlotte, I'd go easy. I know that you're planning a celibate life, but with half my chromosomes, I think that might be tough. Has your mother ever talked to you about sex? Oh, yeah. 
I can get pregnant if I hang my clothes next to a man's suit. We talk about everything. She's a wonderful mother. Why did you think you were pregnant? You're still a virgin. Trust me, I know about these things. She's doing this because she has a problem. And she's probably too frightened to talk to you. Why would she be frightened? Like mother, like daughter. Maybe your life works for you, but it doesn't work for me. And I want to stay. And do what? Finish high school. Great start. What's your major, town tramp? No, Mom, the town already has one. Share. I don't always know what I'm doing. It's not like you and your sister came with a book of instructions. Bob Hoskins. You're a hell of a woman, Rachel. I know. Winona Ryder. Mary O'Brien, she dances around naked, screaming about her boyfriend's quivering loins. Shut up, Charlotte. Shut up. Mermaids. I can tell by my mermaid watch. I'm going to get into my mermaid car and hit the mermaid room. And get the mermaid out of here. Uh, oh, I saw my be fresh for the party. I've always had kind of a weird aversion to share. I don't know why. Maybe it's not weird. Do people like share? No idea. I find this one interesting, though, for a couple of reasons. First, because in re-watching the trailer, I'm compelled to believe there was some real acting happening in this film, especially considering the roles in which we'd seen Winona Ryder in particular up to this point. Beetlejuice, Heathers, Great Balls of Fire. This just felt like a different type of role for her, and one that required real acting chops. Second, it's one of two films she had opening this same weekend, which seems both odd and impressive for a 19-year-old actor. But we'll get to that in a minute. Next on the list, a film I did care about at the time and probably enjoyed thoroughly, but can't really imagine loving today, the return of Bruce Willis as Baby Mikey in Look Who's Talking 2, T-O-O. Look who's back. What's up, my man? Look who's expecting. All right, they went on me. That's your baby sister, Julie, in there. She's kicking. Now, wait a minute, let me get this straight. My little sister is in my juice cup? TriStar Pictures presents... Mikey. This is your sister, Julie. Hiya, Julie. Welcome to the outside. I'm going to be in charge of your life for the next two or three years. Smacking you around, getting you in shape. Anything you need, don't be afraid to ask. Who is this slime ball? Look who's talking to. <laughs> Starring John Travolta. Where's your nose? Just don't pressure me. Oh, man, this is kid dumb. Kirstie Alley. Goodbye, mommy's little honey bunny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whatever. And the voices of Bruce Willis. I got the time if you got the diapers. Roseanne Barr. What are you looking at? And Damon Wayans. Talk about attitude. Come on, let's take it to the zoo and leave it there. Good idea. Of course, he would have a friend. The trick is to take control of the situation. All right, look, let me show you something. Now, these are all toys, right? Uh-huh. Some of them are mine, some of them are yours. Yeah. The way you tell the difference is, I have all the great toys. Look, here's a toy you can play with a Nerf ball. What a well, Here's another one. Join Mikey and Julie. Oh, you shove over. As they discover the secrets of romance. That's Sheila, man. We play doctor together. You play doctor with who? Gotta make another house call. Battle the forces of evil. These are just my toys. As I have not remembered having batteries, but. Oh my God! Monsters! Save their parents' marriage. He's a slob. He's belligerent. He has the earning capacity of an illiterate immigrant. Hey, everybody take a toy and just calm down. And learn. Let up! That's never going to fit me. How to hold their own. Ooh, I had to pinch that one back. Might make it. Oh, I can just get these dollar pants down. Oh. <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not done. Look who's talking to. Now we got us a party. 
As I'm sure I mentioned last year when we were covering the first and what probably should have been the only Look Who's Talking, I was a big fan. And while I loved that the first film ended clearly pointing to a sequel, I think the novelty had worn off by the time the sequel released. What was charming and new very quickly became overdone, at least in retrospect. Besides this sequel, they had a spinoff series called Baby Talk in which Baby Mikey was replaced by Baby Mickey, voiced by Tony Danza, and then another sequel in 1993's Look Who's Talking Now from which Bruce Willis and Roseanne Barr are absent altogether. Instead, that one features Danny DeVito and Diane Keaton voicing the family's new dogs. So, like I said, it was quickly overdone. Nonetheless, predictably, there is supposedly still a reboot being written in which baby Mikey is now grown and becoming a father himself. Very original. Moving on. The movie, besides Home Alone, I cared most about this week in 1990 was the other film featuring young Winona Ryder. This time alongside her first love, the ever-gifted but unfortunately currently spiraling Johnny Depp, and his first of many films with director Tim Burton, the beautifully bizarre Edward Scissorhands. You don't have to hide from me. I'm as harmless as cherry pump. Those are your hands. Those are your hands. I think you should just come home with me. Joyce, I just saw this strange guy driving with Peg. Did you get a good look at it? Hi! Scissors. Whoa, a handshake you got there, Ed. <laughs> Kim, this is Edward who's going to live with us. Well, this must be quite a change for you, right, Ed? Those things are cool. Can I bring show and tell on Monday? He's a highly imaginative character. It seems clear that his awareness of what we call reality is radically underdeveloped. Eddie, you take my very breath away. Do you have a girlfriend? (laughs) Is there some special lady in your life? Doctor, you skewered kid. Just a scratch. The power of Satan is in him. I can feel it. All along, I felt in my gut there was something wrong with him. From Tim Burton comes the most incredible tale of a most unusual character. Edward Scissorhands. Hold me. This is tough. My deep, deep love for this film and the entire catalog of work Burton and Depp have co-created over the subsequent decades, the connection I feel with the title character, and the pure romance of seeing Depp and Ryder's very real love for one another coming through in this film make it really hard not to spend more time on it. But with the very public demise of Johnny Depp's career over the last few years, and especially the last few months, and the shadow of horrific allegations of emotional, verbal, and physical domestic violence, no matter how much I hope they are proven in due time to be false, I just have to move past this one. Suffice to say, it was a beautiful and deeply resonant film, culturally iconic in the truest sense, and it's held up wonderfully over the course of the last 30 years. Also, Tim Burton is a genius. Now, as you know, the number one film in the country this week in 1990 was, for the fifth straight week, Home Alone. 
I hopped on a call recently with Michael Morona, who played the role of Kevin's older brother, Jeff McAllister. I don't know how to pack a suitcase. I've never done this once in my whole life. Tough. That's what Megan said. What did I say? You told Kevin tough. The dope was whining about a suitcase. What am I supposed to do? Shake his hand and say, congratulations, you're an idiot? I'm not an idiot. Oh, really? You're completely helpless. Everyone has to do everything for you. She's right, Kev. Excuse me, pupus. I'm a lot smaller than you. I don't know how to pack a suitcase. Hey, I hope you didn't just pack crap, Jeff. Shut up, Lenny. Do you know what I should pack? Well, it's told you, cheek face. Toilet paper and water. It's so much fun getting to chat with these folks who had the tremendous privilege of helping to create this movie I've loved for a full three quarters of my life. So once again, I'm offering it to you almost entirely uncut. Here's my conversation with Michael Morona. Michael, welcome to 30 Pop. It is such a gift to have you on the show today. Uh, thank you, Luke. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So 30 years ago this week, Home Alone was the number one film once again at the box office. You guys were crushing it, as you did for like months on end. And you play the role of one of Kevin McAllister's siblings, Jeff. Tell me about how you landed this role. Because this was your first major film role, right? Uh, yeah, that's true. How did that happen? How did you kind of stumble into this? I had been doing uh, some commercials, a uh, little bit of TV and uh, some acting on Broadway before this, but had been auditioning for movies and not getting them. And then tried out for Home Alone in, I'm guessing, 89, soon after I booked Pete and Pete. Okay. And uh, I started a new school. And in my first year at a new school uh it was kind of weird to take some time off to go travel to an entirely different state to shoot a movie and um so i went and auditioned and i guess it went okay because it did have a callback with john hughes after that and i don't remember too much about it to be fair it was often the case when you get a callback for a feature or something like that that you will also auditioned for one of the other parts. So in my case, at my callback, I also read for the part of Buzz. I tried out for Devin's part, which nice. I don't know. They're both kind of cruel, but I guess I feel like mine was a little more subtle. My part was a little more subtle in its cruelty towards Kevin. I had zero concept, and I guess I still do, as to what packing toilet paper and water meant. <laughs> Like I assume if we were going to France that both of those things would still be uh, clean and available. So I'm not really sure uh, what Jeff's character was saying to Kevin there about bringing toilet paper and water. Yeah, I actually had to watch it earlier today. I watched it with the subtitles on to understand what you said after that. Cheek face is what it says in the subtitles. Yeah, cheek face was a very... um, I'm an older brother. I have a little brother and a little sister. Mm -hmm. So I'm not a stranger to being mean to your younger sibling. Sure. I just, that was a sophisticated insult to me as well. I did yeah. not, I did not figure out exactly what that meant, but it was probably bad. And <sighs> I'm guessing that like, we just couldn't say butt face yeah. or something like that. Keeping it family friendly. So I'm curious what it was like. So you were old enough. You were probably like 12, 13, right? When you did this? I had turned 12. Yeah. Okay. But you were old enough to sort of at least close to being old enough to realize who John Hughes was, right? I mean, like he was already pretty famous for 
major, major 80s movies. I was familiar with, probably had seen ads for 16 Candles, even though I had not watched it. The subject matter was a little exotic to me. Sure. But there was excitement because of the weight that this producer brought and, you know, how he had some notoriety as well. Yeah. So tell me about getting, if you remember, getting the news that you were, in fact, cast to play the role of Jeff. It was exciting. I, of course, was psyched because it meant I could get out of school. Actually, the most intricate part I remember was just figuring out the logistics. Like, um, would mom come with me? Would dad come with me to Chicago? Where were we going to stay? What were we going to eat? That that type of stuff, I think, was much more interesting to me at the time than I got the job, even though I was very excited to get my first big movie role ever. It was uh, that was really cool. And and I didn't having started at a new school, I couldn't really articulate it to the kids because it felt like bragging. So I just kind of had to go away and do the job in another city and then come back and say, you'll see. You know, the, this coming holiday season when yeah. it comes out. Were you in like a normal public school or were you in like a school for the arts? I mean, was it kids who could appreciate that you were leaving to act at least? Or was it just like you just disappeared for a while? I had started a new school, uh, going to school in Manhattan. I, I lived in Queens and this was um, a nerd school, not not really a performing arts school. Okay. But it's just still in the process of making new friends and figuring stuff out my first year there. And right in the middle of that, I had to go away. Yeah. So there wasn't any real context for people because I wasn't yeah, going to a performing arts school or something like that where that typically happened. But at the same time, they were smart kids, so they were fairly sophisticated about that type of stuff. And how did they, once the movie had come out and continued to be so successful, how did that change things for you back in New York? I feel like it was well-received. I don't know that I caught any particular heat off of it in school or or elsewhere because of it. It just was kind of a cool thing that happened. Uh, I did definitely get people quoting my catchphrase to me. Your disease? Definitely had that said to me in school quite a few times. Oh, gosh, it's the worst. I'd love to hear about the opening scene of the movie. There's all this sort of craziness going on. What do you remember about shooting that opening sort of chaotic scene. Can you describe it for me? I haven't watched the movie in quite some time. Okay. So yeah. So the opening scene is, is the scene where we get the toilet paper and water comment. Everyone's sort of running around. You're waiting on the pizza guy. The pizza guy gets there. You got Joe Pesci standing in the foyer looking for a parent to speak with and people are just everywhere. No one lives there. So the introduction of Joe Pesci is punctuated with me throwing a a duffel bag down the stairs and it lands at Joe Pesci's feet with a thump. Right. And then we tilt up and we see cop Joe Pesci with a gold tooth. Joe Pesci was not there for my part of the scene. I just threw a duffel bag down the stairs. As you can imagine, I think I just had a an X on the floor to throw my duffel bag at. But there are a lot of takes and a lot of people, a lot of moving parts. And uh, I remember thinking Chris Columbus was pretty good at this. I had seen Goonies. I, I didn't know too much else of his work, but this kind of felt like that as far as a lot of kids and a lot of running. Not that I knew how to analyze it at that point, but it took a few days, I think, to get all the sequences down. And um, we shot in New Trier North, which was John Hughes's favorite filming base and an old high school in Chicago okay. that had the sets built inside of it. How long were you in Chicago for this whole process? I have no concept. I've never been in the film world, so I have no idea what it's like to like 
actually be on set? I'm thinking it was between six and eight weeks wow. that it took to shoot in Chicago for Home Alone 1. Wow, that's wild. Could be more, but I don't think so. It was enough time, you know, there were a bunch of kids there. And so you have to all get tutoring to uh, keep up with your schooling. Mm. And uh, I did not keep up with my schooling very well. It was enough time for me to research and write a term paper on the American Civil War when I was supposed to be writing a term paper on the Ethiopian Civil War. That did not filter through from my teacher back in New York. Nice. So I checked out a library book from the Chicago Public Library about the Civil War, and I think I still have it. So if they ever catch up with me for the fine, that would nullify a lot of my residuals from yeah. my life. Uh, so tell me about now. So I know you're still working in the industry, less as an actor, more as an electrician, right? This is according to IMDb. Yeah, I joined Local 52 as an electrician 13 years ago. And before that, I had more, been working for a few years as an electrician, doing lighting on various films. And then you're also a podcaster, Right. Dan Tamborelli and I, um, who you might know from the TV show that we did for Nickelodeon called The Adventures of Pete and Pete. Sure. We do a, sh- uh, a podcast together called The Adventures of Danny and Mike, where nice. we'll have uh, various guests on. I'd be a good idea to get some of those Home Alone co-stars. Thank you for the yeah. idea. <laughs> Pete and Pete, I had just booked and shot a few episodes of right before I booked Home Alone. So 1989 into 1990 was a busy year for me as far as school and work and development like that. I've been able to, we're still working in the film business in New York, run into various people over the years, like the Teamsters who worked on Home Alone 2. Oh, you know, wow. My dad worked on that movie type of stuff. I'll, I'll hear that from various people that I that I work with nowadays, which is which is nice. It's a nice revisit to that, to that time. I was working on, I want to say The Good Fight and Not The Good Wife, the spinoff uh, of that TV show, when Devin Rattray was a, a guest star on one of them, we had a nice mini reunion. That's awesome. So Devin, who did get the role of Buzz in the film, he, he'll actually be on the show here in the next couple of weeks, which will be really fun. And so a very funny, funny guy. I remember being so struck by his quick wit and his physical stylings and stuff like that. He was very, very much a fun actor to work with on that set and made it a lot of fun for everybody. That's awesome. What was that reunion like? We are both dads. So we mostly talked about our kids. The other thing is that if I was there as an actor and he was there as an actor, we might have time to sort of do stuff. But Mm. I was an electrician and he's an actor. So the times when we both have to not work aren't always there. They're sort of overlapping. So it was brief, like I say, but it was still kind of nice. Well, before we wrap up, any stories or, you know, kind of anecdotal type stuff that you remember from the set of the movie that fans might be interested to hear about? The waiting in the the van scene for when, what's his? It's the head count scene. The head count scene where I, I forget the character's name who's counted instead of Kevin, but it's Mitch. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was dominated by the Game Boy. I remember mm-hmm. us uh, just, ha- I, that was a good uh, time killer on the set whenever we weren't doing stuff i remember the game boy coming out and playing video games and sort of you know other people also doing that stuff but i think in that scene i'm playing the game boy on camera and thinking that they sort of added in some sound effects later when they when they realized that i was playing and didn't put it away for the shot or whether (laughs) whether it was or not having a great time i really had um, such a nice time with 
Catherine and John. Mm-hmm. Um, Kristen Minter being a great older cousin mm-hmm. to us was really cool and sort of uh, some people showing us around Chicago and stuff like that be, while being there was a lot of fun. I remember going. It's another video game memory. I remember going and feeding a lot of quarters to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles machine yes. at the ground round in Evanston, Illinois. The best. Um, we, we stayed at a just north of the city and uh and had a lot of good times there as well the the set was a lot of fun and uh chris was used to handling i think groups of kids like that and so many large personalities vying for time Mm. and attention i uh just remember being pretty in awe of devin's quick wit and Catherine as well for that matter and just trying to get a glimpse of what like Julio Macat, the cinematographer was doing, Mm -hmm. just kind of looking, starting to study things behind the scenes. And that is where I started to get into lighting and Hmm. look at the tools of the trade and and stuff behind the camera. That's awesome. So the adventures of Danny and Mike, where would you point folks? Sure. It's the adventures of Danny and Mike with the end spelled out, uh, Danny and Mike.com. And we can be heard on various podcast feeds. We're on the last podcast network as far as that's concerned. Nice. If you know the last podcast of on course. the last guys. Yeah. And I'm at Michael C. Morona on Twitter. And there's a Danny and Mike show as well on Twitter. Perfect. I will make sure to link all those in the show notes for folks to make it as easy as possible for folks to find you. And want to just thank you again for being on the show and, and such a gift. You're, you're part of a, a Christmas classic that will be a part of the rest of my life. So Thanks, Luke. Thanks for briefly taking me back to 30 years ago. It's something that has been that long. Yeah. It's, don't think about it too much, but you know, around the holidays, it's nice to sort of get random texts from people. I'm watching the TV and your face is on here, which is nice. You know, people that maybe you haven't spoken to in a while and you know, you're more sensitive about that in the age of COVID. Everybody keep clean and wash your hands and be safe. Yes. Thank you for that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Michael. We'll talk to you again later. Thanks, Luke. Take care. See ya. Sincerest thanks to Michael for being a part of this episode of 30 Pop. And sincerest thanks to you as well for continuing to join me on this journey. I can't believe we're down to our final two episodes looking back in 1990. I hope you'll join me for each of the next couple weeks as I interview more Home Alone siblings. I've had so much fun getting to so thoroughly explore this movie that I've loved for so long. And I'm excited to continue on. I'll be back next week, but in the meantime, I'd like to ask for a favor. This is extremely important. Will you please tell Santa that instead of presents this year, I just want my family back. No toys. Nothing but Peter, Kate, Buzz, Megan, Lenny, and Jeff. And my aunt and my cousins. And if he has time, my Uncle Frank. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 1990 that you want to share on the air, email 30poppodcast at gmail.com.